Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's head straight to the global capital of foreign exchange, shall we, Tom King? To London we go and catch up with Kit Jukes of SockGen. Kit, let's just start with the economic data, 90 minutes away in the United States. What are you looking for, Kit? Um, I'm, oh, I'm hoping we don't get another uptick in um, new claims and uh, even more so uh, another uptick in continuing claims just because this would, be, this would be an awfully high level of unemployment for things to stabilize with the unemployment rate getting level getting stuck around here. There's an awfully big hole still to fill in. And, you know, you, you've had decent number on, on, on ISMs and on quite a lot of the data has said that, yes, there's been some bad news on the virus, but without a return to lockdown, things carry on. And so the labor market data have to have the capacity to really put a dampener on, on that kind of story. You know, Kid, I look at this and I loved your morning note, the acuity of it, as you look at the granular data around all these political emotions, including the claims report at 830. And I got to go to the bond market, Kit, and we go out to four digits here on Bloomberg surveillance. We call these Roman numbers uh, in honor of Roman who made this happen. But going out to four digits on the 10-year yield is just simple, 0. 0.5150. What does it say? say to you, Kit Jukes, and where is the critical 10-year yield? Uh, I guess the critical 10-year yield is when it goes negative and joins the rest of, of the planet. That's where, that's where we just go nuts. But I mean, I, it's, you know, we, are in, we are in pretty new territory in terms of, of this move. And, and that's what I mean when I say that some of the data has shown you know, resilience with, the, with the, the sort of the wider spread around the United States of, of the pandemic. But there's, there's just a um, a continued hunk for safe hunts for safe assets and a continued belief that rates are staying low for just as far as the eye can possibly imagine. Uh, and uh, and I, you know, that doesn't look as if it's going away anytime soon. But, but say, look at tip shields. I mean, they are, they are just accelerating away. So uh, today, I think that market is, is clearly, we're frightened of bad numbers as opposed to um, braced for strong ones. What strikes me is the incredible divergence and the widening divergence in developed markets' ability, the U.S.'s ability to lower rates and even issue more debt, and the lack of that ability by a number of developing markets. Turkey is its own idiosyncratic story, but how representative is it of emerging market nations that are not able to ease some of their monetary policies to juice growth for fear of capital flight? Yeah, we have to be precise about which emerging markets, but there's more than one. I actually think that where we've got to this year in a sense, the weakest, the weakest currencies, it goes, um, you know, we, we still have a considerable weakness out there um, for the Turkish lira, the South African rand, and we do for the Brazilian real this year. The Morgan Stanley folks talked about the fragile five. India and Indonesia further east are in much better shape than, uh, than the, the, the terrible three or the fragile three. If it's, if it's G3, um, it, developed currencies which are all resilient it's really those g3 em ones that are together weak and but but if you if you are dependent on foreign capital you do not have the ability for qe um, aggressive fiscal responses to the pandemic and you and you live you know in danger of what the global environment is and here we are in august and and you know august is historically not a good month to need to go to the world and borrow money. And this is what we see. Kit, you're worried about the month of August. 
aren't you? Just walk us through that, what you're looking for this month. Well, so, you know, we put out a bunch of, a bunch of pieces separately at our shop where the, the rates guys were worried about um, risk aversion in August. The emerging market guys were worried about risk aversion. And I was looking at various currency trades that do well in August. Um, you know, the, the currencies that do badly in August do include, you know, the Turkish lira, the Brazilian real, the South African rand. What does well is the dollar and the yen and gold historically. I don't know if gold can do well starting from here, but... Um, but but what you know what happens in August is that it's illiquid um, and volatile. You see a pickup in volatility typically, and, and therefore uncertain. And what you can see today is that in an illiquid market, these fragile emerging market currencies can gap wider incredibly quickly on on really no volume at all. It, it's just a, a daft market, and that's what's happening. I mean, kid, I think this is brilliant. It's great to go around the world, but the answer is Jerome Powell is central banker to the world. And to go back to where you said, I guess the 10-year yield is important in a negative statistic, 0.5150, folks. We're getting very near the workout of a couple uh, a week ago or so. But, but Kit, there's a point here where the central bank has to say, OK, the market's finally testing. Is that a point four zero? Is it a point two zero or is it really they're going to wait for a negative statistic? I, I, I think they have very little choice. But, you know, the Fed's made it clear they're either adding more money or, you know, they'll wait for inflation to, to, to come up. They, they know that the downside risk of the economy is still there. So. You know, so to me, the, the, the Fed is, is on easy, staying easy. They're, they're there to protect the markets. They came in and delivered, you know, massively accommodative policy globally in March with all the international moves they did on the Treasury repo and on the swap program. Hugely positive in turn, turning around sentiment. That's weakened the dollar, but it's weakened the dollar more against developed market currencies than these fragile ones because it hasn't mm-hmm. unlocked global capital. And that's really a problem for growth in those states. If you're just joining us on Bloomberg Television, Bloomberg Radio Worldwide, surveillance with you this morning, Lisa Bramowitz, John Farrow, and Tom Keen. Markets are on the move before the claims data, which we see here in an hour and 20 minutes. Francine Lacroix's interview with Governor Bailey scheduled at the top of the eight o'clock hour as well. Kid, okay, the bond market's on the move, but the dollar shows that persistent resilience, even within a weak dollar regime. Can Gen call weak dollar? Yeah, once this calms down, at the moment the dollar is still slightly stronger than it was at the start of the year in trade weighted terms, on the BIS measure of, uh, of so broad trade weighted terms. It will weaken, but I don't know if it can weaken until we can stabilize these fragile emerging market economies, because what weakens the dollar is American investors looking for higher yields somewhere else. The Fed's done its job and made sure that there's no yield unavailable at all in the United States. I don't know, the Nasdaq's done its job to get equity prices so high, I'm not sure if many people have the stomach to keep on chasing. But, but we have to get, this is where the pandemic hurts. Can we, can we make the rest of the world attractive to sell the dollar into buying, yeah. really in a proper way around emerging markets? Uh, a bit, you know, without getting a vaccine or a, some some kind of solution for the virus. That's the key question, Kit. Before we let you go, positive or negative print in payrolls tomorrow? Uh, I hope positive. The fact that it took a while to answer that question speaks to how uncertain tomorrow is. Kit, great to catch you up, sir. Kit Jukes of SockGen. Bloomberg's Francine Lackwork, good friend and colleague, catching up with the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey. Take a listen. The things we've looked at are broadest: further QE, further quantitative easing, 
um, potentially use of negative rates, and uh, forward guidance. Those are the things that we've looked at. So, so yield curve control has not been discussed, or is it something I that... Find, I've, I've, I mean, obviously, yield curve control is quite interestingly discussed in, 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 in central banks, and we do, we do discuss it. It's, it's something that... I mean, we've, we've preferred to, to look at uh, quantitative easing and uh, forward guidance as tools in that respect. Um, but, it's, but I would make the point that we will go on looking at the toolbox. You know, nothing is uh, fixed down forever, but it's not uh, in our planning at the moment. I think it is true that I think when you look at the experience of other countries, they appear to have worked more effectively in the recovery phase. Now, I would, however, qualify that a bit by saying I think there's, an, there's a tricky identification issue at that point as to what extent it's negative rates that are driving, for instance, the recovery of the banking system, the lifting of uh, the, the, the release of provisions, uh, and therefore the ability to lend, and to what extent that would have happened anyway, because it's a, it's a cyclical point. It's a, it's a rather tricky issue in that respect. So uh, the evidence is there, but it's a little bit hard to identify the causes. But then, again, in terms of sequence, it's not something that you, that you would rule out, right? It, it could happen at, at that phase. Oh, definitely the message we're giving today is, it, look, they're in the box. I, I mean, there are other central banks that have said they're not in the box, because, again, their financial systems have got different properties, and they draw different conclusions, so I can understand that. They're in the box. We're not considering using them at the moment. The governor of the Bank of England with Francine Lacroix. Neil Dutta with us right now, Renaissance Macro. He has been a great optimistic voice over the last decade or so. Neil Dutta, this was a relatively optimistic statistic. As I said, we're beginning to set up a set of data points that show some trend towards healing. Is that what you observe? Uh, I do. I mean, if you look at the jobless claims number uh, today, um, you know, the non-seasonally adjusted claims number, remember the seasonals matter a lot right now, just given the sheer volume of claims that are being processed. But the NSA number, Tom, that actually dipped below uh, a million to 984,000. Yeah. So that's something to keep an eye on. So that's, I think, a positive development. You know, look, I mean, I think the virus, uh, this is something that Jay Powell said, the Fed statement has it, the course of the economy reflects the, the virus to a large degree, and uh, we know the virus uh, spread uh, more rapidly across the country, uh, starting sometime in the middle uh, of June, uh, and it's coming under some control, some signs that, that it's beginning to uh, ebb a bit now. Uh, and so I think the labor market basically hit a big pothole in, uh, in July, um, but we also know that activity, um, you know, there's still a bunch of sectors that are still doing reasonably well, all things considered. I mean, uh, auto sales picked up better than expected. We obviously know, um, you know, look at any chart tied to the housing market, whether that's home builders or uh, Whirlpool, uh, they're all uh, showing very strong recoveries, uh, and that's mirroring the recovery we're seeing in home sales. Um, and uh, and there still needs, a, there needs to be an inventory restocking well, of some kind, so that's going to support manufacturing. So, um, I think activity is doing okay. The labor market kind of hit a pothole in July, but historically and generally, the labor mm -hmm. market follows GDP, and so you should expect labor market activity to accelerate in August. Red in the, and green on the screen, folks. So uh, S&P futures negative two, and we see green with the Dow and the NASDAQ 100 as well. Neil Dutta, what is your unemployment rate statistic for tomorrow? I think you get another slight tick down. I mean, the thing about the unemployment rate, um, which, which was something I've been thinking about, is... Um, you know, as we get to the fall, uh, 
labor force participation may not actually come up as much as as it has been because parents are going to need to juggle work-from-home arrangements and their children's schooling. And so do you see a scenario where the labor force participation rate isn't actually coming up that much, but the 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 upshot of, the, of that, it would be that the, the jobless rate falls a little bit more uh, than expected. Um, that That's something I think uh, people need to keep in mind, uh, and whether that maybe leads to a little bit more wage pressure um, for those that are working. Obviously, it's hard for parents that physically can't get to work to exert downward pressure on the wages of those that are still working. So uh, that's something I think uh, we should be keeping in the back of our mind. Certainly, if you look at something like the Conference Board Labor Differential, uh, consumers feel relatively buoyant about um, about the jobs market, given some of the data that we've seen. Uh, and that would point to an a, a unemployment rate that probably goes below 10% by, uh, you know, a few months before the end of the year. NASDAQ futures positive on the session now, up a tenth of 1%. The S&P just about erasing the losses of the morning so far. Neil, you mentioned some of the seasonal effects. Let's talk about that with regards to the payrolls report tomorrow. How should we navigate the numbers tomorrow with that in mind? Well, sure. I mean, the uh, the most obvious is the state and local government piece, uh, right? So, um, obviously, the pandemic forced state and local government layoffs uh, much earlier in the year than is normal. Typically, you see a big seasonal drop-off in um, in June and July. Uh, you, you probably got that sooner, uh, which led to disproportionate declines in, in, in uh, state and local government payrolls over the month. So, uh, if non-seasonally adjusted uh, state and local government employment is flat, in July, the seasonal factor will probably add at least 800000 to it. So um, this is one reason why, you know, you should be a little bit wary of using the ADP to draw a big sweeping conclusion about non-farm payrolls in, um, for July, for tomorrow. Uh, and that's because the state and local piece of it is going to show a large seasonally adjusted increase in my view. Neil, you were talking about consumer spending and how that's giving you some optimism, the auto sales in particular. And I'm wondering how much the expiration of enhanced unemployment benefits factors into this. Everyone was talking about how crucial this was for the continuation of it in order for the economy to remain up. Now it has expired. No deal in sight. How important is it that there is a deal or do you have to change your outlook? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's definitely something that uh, that I'm worried about. Uh, every I think everyone's worried about it. Um, obviously, um, you know, you mentioned that no deal is in sight. Obviously, the markets are disagreeing with that. The markets do see some deal in sight. Otherwise, why would they be rallying on the expectation of, you know, apparently these fiscal authorities getting closer to some kind of an agreement? So, um, you know, I, I would sort of take issue with the idea that they're moving further apart. I think they're moving closer. Um, but, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, obviously people are going to pull back ahead of those benefits expiring, uh, which is one, pro- one reason you probably have seen some stalling out and things like credit card spending among low-income consumers over the last number of weeks. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the U.S. has great fiscal capacity at the moment, so there's really no excuse to not extend them. Uh, so I agree. But uh, it's certainly a downside risk. Um, uh, but I do think it'll, it'll get resolved to some degree. Hey, Neil, great to catch up with you, sir. Ahead of tomorrow, Neil Dutty there of Renaissance Macro. Thank you. Fantastic. Interesting dynamic and nuance in the markets today. And to give us perspective from BlackRock, head of global fundamental fixed income strategy, Marilyn Watson, uh, with us right now with a wonderful transatlantic view. Uh, Marilyn, I look at the bond market, and there's a point where you switch from yield analysis to price analysis. Is all this is about, whether it's full faith and credit or it's the new Google 40-year piece, that there's a buying frenzy for paper? 
Um, I think it's really just really reflective of the environment that we're in now. I mean, if you look at the huge amount of demand uh, for yield and for carry, you look at the enormous amount of stimulus that you're seeing um, still coming through from the Eurozone, from the U.S., um, at the moment, it's just where do investors put their money? Um, and I think particularly now as well, when you move into August, you have typically thinner markets, um, more volatility. We've seen also events in Turkey today and elsewhere. I think investors are really just scrabbling to find where they can find income and yield and where they can put their money. And so, as you say, I mean, you know, looking at price or looking at, at the yield, I mean, yields are <clears throat> Yeah, low, but they're going to stay low for a long time. I mean, Lisa, it's great. The Google 40-year piece, you get a 2 and something percent coupon. It's up 2% off the three-day-ago offering, which I think is a greater than 1,000% total return per year. I didn't get into that, Lisa. I'm glad you bought the Google paper. Yeah, I levered it up I, with my triple leverage cash fund that I have yeah. in the closet along with the, uh, the oil. I am wondering, though, at what point Google is sort of an idiosyncratic story with the idea of it being a pretty strong company that's enjoying a lot of balance sheet advantages, whereas there are a lot of investment-grade companies on the cusp, potential fallen angels in Maryland. I pair that with the idea that yields, average yields on investment-grade bonds have plunged to all-time lows in the U.S. of 1.83%. Is this overdone? Um, well, so at the moment, I don't think it's necessarily overdone. I think um, if you look at, say, the huge amount of demand, but you also look at declining issuance, uh, particularly after you saw that you had the huge supply from some, some emergency issuance in Q1. Um, we're still in a world which is really starved of high-quality yields. Um, you know, and I think, as, as I say, given the amount of stimulus that we're seeing uh, and support uh, from monetary policy, but also we are expecting something else on the fiscal side, then, and you look at, um, you know, tech companies, for example, or communications um, that continue to do very well during the pandemic, then... I don't think it's necessarily overdone. I think it's just that, you know, investors are really trying to find where they can put their money. And, you know, so we are still overweight uh, tech and communications, for example. Um, and despite the rally, I think, you know, we investors need to put their, put their money somewhere. Obviously, we will, we will see a lot of dispersion going forward as we do continue to see how the economy evolves and the trajectory there. Obviously, we have payrolls um, yeah. uh, tomorrow. We have the data today. So I think it's just really investors have really tried to find where to put their money. And, you know, at the moment, you're not getting any value in treasuries. So where do you put it? Yeah. In full disclosure, I did not buy Google or any single name, anything. Just oh, in case Apple, anything, excuse me. Uh, <laughs> just in case any anyone was wondering. But I am wondering, Marilyn, from your perspective, where do you draw the line? Where is the risk too great to pick up the extra yield? I mean, if you really want extra yield, you can go into Turkey. Well, yeah. So, so you have to take a very clear view on your uh, risk reward profile and your tolerance for uh, for volatility. And uh, I think really when you're looking at a, an overall sort of holistic portfolio, like volatility is something that you really have to take into account. Obviously, in the um, emerging markets or in Turkey in particular, then, um, you know, that's, that's a specific case because of the, uh, the dollar demand onshore uh, and the huge uh, funding requirements that they have for the capital account. But um, I think, as, as I say, also just looking at the markets now in terms of volatility, it's really important, as you say, particularly now when you're looking at uh, the moves we're seeing in the market, when you're looking at the tightness of spreads, but you look at the very quick moves that you can see uh, when there's some sort of trigger, then factoring volatility into your analysis is important and really understanding liquidity. I mean, I can't stress enough how important it is 
to understand the liquidity of any asset that you that you want to hold. And to give you perspective there, Ms. Abramo, it's a sidling into the nine-year Turkish piece with a seven and five-eighths coupon trading at 98 right now. It's traded ugly the last couple of days, no surprise, off Turkey as well. Lisa, I just think you should hold out for a 9% yield in Turkey. Thank you. Um, you know, Marilyn, I look Tom. at all of this and it's great, <laughs> but within an allocation, it used to be equities and bonds, maybe a little cash as well. Are you finding bonds are part of an institution's allocation now, or have they just given it up because of the yield risk? So they do still remain part of an institution allocation, um, definitely. Um, and, you know, you have seen um, a shift uh, in terms of where investors are putting the money within the fixed income space, but they still remain a very strong part of uh, an institution's investments or a pension fund. And when you look at demographics, whether it's uh, in the U.S. or elsewhere, then you know, there's an ongoing consistent funding requirement for, for pensions, for retirement, uh, and for other things. And so I think fixed income remains a key part mm-hmm. of, of an institution's portfolio. But you know, the risk-rewards are different. And when you look at the prospect for the equity market versus fixed income in the short term, as I particularly given all of the stimulus, then, um, and, you know, if, when you look at the correlations, and July was an incredibly good month for both equities and credit, um, then it's just really important to continue to look at the beta yeah. between the different asset classes and maybe rebalance your portfolio a little bit. Marilyn, thank you so much. Marilyn Watson with BlackRock. Turkey not looking good this morning, that's for sure. The Turkish lira very much on the floor. Piotr Matis joins us now, Rabobank Emerging Market Strategist. Piotr, I know it's become a bit of a routine that you and I only usually catch up when something like this happens. And it speaks to the frequency of how often these kinds of things happen in Turkey. What's different about this moment? Um, I would say that there are, first of all, lots of similarities of what we witnessed in the summer of 2018. Uh, The Turkish lira is is falling quite uh, precipitously. And uh, the central bank um, faces the same major dilemma as on previous occasions, whether um, uh, interest rates should uh, raise quite substantially by a few hundred base points. The main difference between um, summer 2018 and right now is that Governor Uysal was appointed in the middle of 2019 to slash interest rates aggressively, faces a tremendous challenge of convincing President Erdogan, that raising interest rates would be the right thing to do. And my concern is that he will find it so difficult to convince President Erdogan that Turkey may come dangerously close or perhaps beyond the point of uh, no return, and we're going to witness a full-scale currency crisis in Turkey. Piotr, what does a full-scale currency crisis actually look like in Turkey? Uh, To me, it would... um, uh, we would see dollar lira um, uh, at uh, around 10 or, or even higher. Uh, we would see um, Turkish residents running towards uh, the nearest uh, uh, bank to withdraw dollars because suddenly uh, trust in banks may evaporate. And actually, in my note, I emphasize that trust is um, uh, one of the most important indicators uh, worth watching in coming uh, weeks or even days, because as we know, uh, the central bank uh, currently relies on uh, record high dollar deposits, uh, borrows dollars from, from commercial banks to replenish falling FX reserves. 
So if there's a run on a bank in, in Turkey, important to emphasize no such signals, warning signals yet. But if such scenario were to unfold, then uh, dollar lira would um, we would see it significantly higher at uh, completely uncharted territory. On Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Television now, watching the markets moving here, talking emerging markets with Piotr Matis of Rabobank. Gold just out to new record highs. Piotr, tell me what a Turkey does where they have two regimes. They have a dollar-based financial system and a lira-based financial system. How do the people of Turkey survive this currency collapse? Um, the good news is that um, Turkish households and corporates are relatively well prepared. Um, uh, they hedge against uh, even weaker lira, uh, as reflected in record high dollar deposits uh, at above $200 billion. Uh, so they are, they are, they are prepared. Um, that said, there would be tremendous uh, pain, nevertheless, because a weaker lira, even at current levels, is going to have significant inflationary consequences at the time when inflation is at around 12% and is likely to remain in double-digit territory um, in coming months, which in turn is going to keep real interest rates deeply in negative territory. And this is one of the reasons why Turkish lira uh, is so vulnerable. Piotr, just zooming out a little bit, Turkey is its own case, but I wonder how representative it is of other emerging markets that have high foreign currency exposure. I'm just thinking about the fact, this statistic really struck me, that the Turkish Central Bank spent more to support its currency in the first six months than all of 2019, and you're seeing the foreign currency reserves decline. How much of a common story is this? Um, Turkish lira definitely, to a large extent, decoupled from, from other uh, emerging uh, currencies. Uh, July, for most of them, was actually a very, very good uh, month. So there are some great opportunities uh, in, in, in EM, EM space. Uh, Turkey is a, is a specific story. I think it's a, it's a lesson. Uh, it's a warning signal to um, other uh, influential leaders not to interfere in monetary policy. Leave central banks alone and make sure that they do their job uh, properly. And my concern is that at the time when across emerging markets, uh, central banks cut interest rates to record low levels and, more importantly, started using quantitative easing, there's going to be lots of far more political interference uh, in monetary policy. So I hope that politicians in other EM countries will refrain from uh, trying to influence monetary policy and Turkey is a very good lesson. Piotr, I have a feeling we'll be talking again soon. Yes. Piotr Matis of Rabobank on a situation in Turkey. I hope so. Thank you for and having beyond. me. I look forward to it, sir. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.